In 1858, outside Boston, a bat and ball game was created, which came to be known as the Massachusetts game or town ball. It's not the New York game most people know, with a diamond field and three bases. Rather, in this game, there was only one out per inning. The infield was a square, and there wasn't even a foul territory. There were plenty of reasons why the New York game won out over the Massachusetts game as our national pastime. Most notably, the geometry of the New York game made it both aesthetically pleasing and playable. But the geometry of the Massachusetts game was awkward and off kilter. Many who have played both styles, however, recognize that there are some aspects of the 1858 game that make it preferable to the New York version. What if there was a game that had the geometric appeal and playability of the New York version and the unorthodox aspects of the popular Massachusetts game? 21st Century Town Ball is an attempt to be just that. With a couple tweaks added in 2012, like a physical strike zone, five total bases, stealing first base, and the ball always being live, the goal of 21st Century Town Ball has been, and always will be, to forestall the growing exodus from bat and ball. Let's bring people back to the game. Made it. We are at the end of chapter one of the 21st Century Town Ball podcast. This is episode five. I'm your host, Grant Moore, and today we are getting to hear from the father of Town Ball himself, Daniel Jones. You've heard his name many times leading up to this episode, and if you've never met him before, you're probably really eager to hear this conversation. I will say, this is not the only time we'll have Jones on the podcast. But he does beautifully cap off this chapter focused on Town Ball's beginnings. He not only confirmed everything Tommy, Mason, Brad, and Jimmy said, but he also talked more about the guiding vision that birthed, facilitated, and continues to carry Town Ball through the years. For Jones, Town Ball was simply the result of a lifelong love of learning, the spirit of sportsmanship, hospitality, the freedom that comes from Socratic debate and an itching dissatisfaction with the state of modern baseball and the limitations of cricket. Jones is many things to many people, but to me, he is a friend, business partner, father figure, competitor, and thought partner. My own life's trajectory has changed because of Daniel Jones, and yours probably has as well, if you know him. Let's finally hear from the founder of 21st Century Town Ball, Daniel Jones. Hello, Grant. How are you? I am doing great. It's always good to hear you, to see you. Yes. You are in Oregon right now? I'm in Oregon. I'm, yeah, I'm at my place outside, actually, so you might hear some lawnmowers and goats and stuff, but the listener has heard about you many times so far. If they've listened to these episodes in order, they've heard about you from Tommy Sanchez, Mason Molinax, Brad Visaki, and Jimmy Sanborn. And now we have finally are here. So Jones, what is town ball? That's a great question. What is town ball? <laughs> that could be answered so many different ways. Um, Town ball, let's just start with the definition. Town ball is a bat and ball game based on the version of baseball played in Massachusetts before the Civil War. In 2012, as Brad mentioned, I did listen to those episodes you mentioned. And uh, before I get too much into it, I want to thank you because I, I want to echo some of the things they said um, about you. Just thank you so much for everything you've been doing for town ball. Um, I kind of, after listening to those episodes, I want to refer to Brad as the spirit of town ball past. And Jimmy is the town spirit of town ball future. Just listen to what they say. Jimmy had so much to say about uh, the future of town ball. And Brad has so much to say about where town ball came from. So perhaps, yes, like you mentioned, that uh, you're the spirit of town ball present. holding it all together for us. So thank you so much for doing these podcast episodes. Um, it gives us an opportunity just to kind of share what's been going on with town ball. And there's been a lot, as you know, and as you guys have mentioned, it's just been a phenomenal experience Jimmy used the word explosive, I think. Yes. 
and it has, and it's been exploding in small pockets here and there. Um, we aren't by any means where we want to be as far as nobody really knows about us yet. And that's part of the reason why I think you're doing these pod podcasts. But it's just been so great to see that a game that, like Brad mentioned, came out of university high school. You know, just 30 of us got together and, and started playing at lunch, that kind of thing. And to what's become now, and we're, we're, we're clearly seeing it's going, as Jimmy mentioned. So yeah, it started with, it started as an idea. I can give you, how much detail do you want? Because there's, there's just so much, I can go to the finest detail of what happened. Do you want me to just? Well, I think something that hasn't been covered yet in this particular order of the episodes. Yeah is what was going on before town ball started and then okay. what made the idea for town ball begin what were the what were the preconditions for it sure let's do this so i was born in wisconsin and my mom grew up in minnesota and minnesota baseball was really big um when she grew up uh, she t she tells stories about her and her family playing um, baseball back behind the barn, listening to twins players like Rod Carew, Harmon Killebrew, Tony Leva play. And for me, you know, I grew up in Taiwan. My parents were missionaries in Taiwan for 20 years, but we always come back in the summer. And so in the summers, we'd come back and kind of repeat history. We did the same thing. We would play baseball behind the barn, probably the same barn in the 80s um, and early 90s. Um, same time, doing the same thing, listening to Kirby Puckett. Kent Herbeck, Gary Gaetti, those guys play, play ball uh, during, during their golden years. And so baseball was always a part of my growing up. It's part of my family's history. Um, we talk about finished baseball sometimes, and that's a really important part of, of my background as well um, because of where, what baseball means to me. Um, so I played a lot of baseball growing up. I had aspirations to play pro. Didn't get very far. In fact, uh, the day before college tryouts, or not the day before, but like the month before college trials for baseball, I broke my finger. And that kind of set my course, life course in a different direction. And so long story short, um, I ended up uh, teaching at University High School. And before then, sorry, after I broke my finger, I said, okay, I, it got me thinking about the game of baseball itself. I've told you the story before, but I started thinking about the game of baseball itself. And I was like, okay, I love the game of baseball, but I think it could be a better game, you know, how could we make this a better game? And so I actually switched over to cricket at that time and played a ton of cricket with my college friends after I broke my finger at Bethel College in Minnesota and just fell in love with cricket. I kind of abandoned baseball. I said, baseball, it's behind me. I'm playing cricket from now on. This game is just so much better. Um, I love the fact that there's no foul balls in cricket. It kind of opens the mind a little bit. And we just had a thrill, you know, turning around, hitting the ball backwards, that kind of thing. This is, this is so much details. Just over the course of time, I, I was thinking about baseball and cricket, and I said to myself, well, you know, I, I love cricket. I'm, I've kind of put baseball behind me, but I really miss the base running of baseball because cricket, you know, as you know, you run back and forth. It gets kind of boring after a while. It gets dull. And baseball is dull for other reasons. So I said to myself, there's got to be a way we can combine the best of baseball, especially the base running, and the best of cricket. There's got to be a, a, a game out there. I did my own personal research. Um, this timeline, this would be when I was in my 20s. I did some research, and I came across the Massachusetts game of baseball, which is what Town Ball is based on. And that game in particular had the two aspects that I was looking for. It had the base running of baseball, because it had four bases in the shape of a square. And yet it had the no foul ball aspect of cricket. And so I, I never played the game at that time. I just kind of kept it in the back of my mind and said, this would be a really fun game to try someday. So fast forward, um, I moved to Fresno and eventually started teaching at University High School. And in 2009, we started the cricket club. Um, I just told my supervisor, yeah, we've been playing cricket. I played cricket in college with my, my friends. I would like to start a cricket club here. He was all for it. Um, it was James Bushman, the head of school at the time. He had played a little bit of cricket when he visited India, and he loved the idea. The fact that the school was doing something so different, like cricket. He loved that, that concept. So we started a cricket club. And very shortly thereafter, we, we formed teams. We formed a three-team league that we played during the electives that Brad was referring to. We started with electives for cricket. We did that for five years uh, before Town Ball even... Sorry, three years before Town Ball came on the scene. Yeah, three years. And then before Town Ball came on the scene. So that's kind of the background. I Just one more thing I want to say is I had been thinking a lot about, while playing cricket with my students, 
about combining those two aspects of cricket and baseball together. I used to go out into the park, the local park by myself, and just try to imagine what that would look like. Um, I would envision first base, S stakes, first stake, second stake, third stake, fourth stake, um, because I knew about the stakes for the Massachusetts game. But I will say right now that getting beyond the fourth stake never really occurred to any of us until, just like Brad mentioned, until that one year elective in 2012 when suddenly we realized we could think outside the box put the stake behind us and add another stake and like brad said that i think was the day that town ball was born and that was what january of 2012 yeah i think it was like the 13th day of the first month of the 21st century i mean it's all these fibonacci numbers keep coming coming up all over the place but and the 13th okay. year in the thirteenth year, right? Twenty twelve is the thirteenth year of the twenty yeah. century. It might be the fifth day of that of that month or something like that. So it seems like the Fibonacci sequence just keeps hounding us when we talk about town ball. Kind of funny. And I'm glad you brought that up because I actually don't think the Fibonacci sequence has been brought up yet. Okay. In these episodes, um, the 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 game, the design of the field, hasn't really been discussed yet. We've we've only kind of here and there alluded to rules like stealing first base no foul territory yeah one out per inning things like that how did the fibonacci sequence help provide an aha moment for completing the game in a sense because the massachusetts game we have to mention for people that don't know wasn't really ever completed right that's that's our opinion yeah it wasn't really completed yeah and why is that Great question. So if you look at the history of baseball, baseball has so much more documented history than the Massachusetts game does. I should say the New York game, which is what modern baseball is based off of, has so much more documented history than the Massachusetts game. The Massachusetts game is kind of clouded in obscurity because they didn't really document things very well. And it probably is because the foresight of the people who are doing the New York game you know, they looked ahead and said, okay, if we want to make this a national game, what do we have to document? What do we have to do? You know, how do we market this game really well? And the people in Boston were too busy having so much fun with a game that was better <laughs> that they didn't think to, to really market it in the same way. And so historians will tell you, if you look at, um, if you listen to some of the writings or read some of the writings written by um, John Thorne, um, he's the official historian of Major League Baseball, he talks a lot about the Massachusetts game. And in his writings, he says several times that he believes the Massachusetts version of play was better than the New York version of play, which to me is very intriguing because if something back in history is better than something that is now, and yet it just got lost in obscurity, then my immediate response is, well, let's pick it up and, and resurrect it. Let's see what we can do with this. Because if you look at the rules of the original Massachusetts game, there are only 21 rules written down. And that's about how many the original New York game also had written down. But over the course of time, because the New York game was the one that survived, the number of rules increased over time because they realized they had to think about this. Oh, they hadn't thought about that. Um, the original version of baseball, I don't know exactly. It's been a while since I've looked at it, but originally there were a lot more balls that the pitcher had to throw before they got a walk. It could have been something like if they throw 10 balls as a walk. I don't know the exact number. And so the rules are just so strange and so different than how they are today. But the, the framework of what baseball is, is definitely based upon the New York version of play. They had the diamond. They had the three outs. That was an early, early thing. There's a lot of debate over uh, whether they should make this game seven innings or nine innings. They ultimately decided on nine innings, by the way, I think. This is my, my theory, and I'm, I think I can back it up pretty well is that everything about baseball is very mathematical, right? There's nine innings, um, there's nine players, there's three strikes, there's three outs, um, there's 90 feet between the bases. The number is three and nine. The numerology of baseball almost gives it like this aura of, of like attraction because of the numerology. And so we kind of had a similar idea with the Fibonacci sequence after we realized the Fibonacci sequence really would satisfy the base paths of town ball better than any other other numerology. And so your, your original question was, why do, why do I think that the game was not completed? Because if baseball wasn't completed at the time and they had a few rules, 
same with the Massachusetts game. Some of the some of the rules in the Massachusetts game kind of leave a lot of loose ends. For example, there was no way to strike out in the game. Sorry, there's no way. There's no incentive for the, for the batter to swing. If the if the pitcher threw it down the middle and the batter didn't swing, there was no penalty for that. And we didn't. We we thought we realized that 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 probably was because they hadn't finished the game. So we kind of took those rules and finished the game. So it became town ball as we know it today. In 21st century town ball, more specifically, right? That's right. Because town ball, two words, was kind of a regional synonymous term with baseball two words like if you had someone from tennessee traveling up to philadelphia and they saw bat and ball going on the tennessee folks might say hey look it's you know baseball and the massachusetts people might say hey look they're playing town ball that's right so one thing um that you and i have talked about a lot is what baseball one word is to baseball two words that's what our game is, town ball, one word, two, town ball, two words. It's the same relationship. What do, what do we mean by that when we say, when, when, when we're making that point there? Sure. Like you mentioned, uh, the words town ball and baseball, depending which historians you ask, but we'll go with this for now. They would, they would tell you that those are regional terms based upon where the person was from. So if they're from the South, they might refer to it as town ball, whereas if they're in uh, New England, they might refer to it as round ball. And you know, some historians will kind of break it up a little bit more specifically and say, like, well, town ball refers to this version of baseball, and, and round ball refers to this version of baseball. But it's, it's very obscure. It's very difficult to track down because of the sparsity of, of writing about the subject in the 19th, and early, 19th century and earlier. But as far as town ball is concerned, what is referred to what was referred to as town ball definitely referred to as town ball back in the past um was basically if you if you look at some of the writings by henry chadwick and some other authors um i can't remember exactly who it was but they 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 specifically say and from from a, a standpoint of authority that town ball the word town ball two words town ball was a game that evolved out of what was an earlier child's game referred to as old cat and old cat really is a lot like cricket in that there were two bases and they ran back and forth and so what these writers would say is that once more people came to play old cat like say five six seven more players they would kind of expand the field by adding more bases so it became a little bit more like town ball or baseball and what they said is that Town ball, two words, is really just old cats expanded. And they say that because it retained all the same rules. And you look at some of the rules of the original versions of town ball, two words. One of the rules was you didn't have to run until the third strike. You could hit the ball and not run if you didn't want to. And so that's kind of where we got the idea of not having to run until the third strike in 21st century town ball. And so a lot of our game is based upon that version of play, town ball. And so it's totally right and just for us to refer to our game as town ball. Now we call it town ball one word, just like you mentioned, because baseball two words is what they call the 19th century version of the Massachusetts of the New York game, baseball. And they now refer to it baseball one word as a specific game played now. And so we do the same thing where we say, well, this game is based on town ball and also based on the Massachusetts game, which is not referred to as town ball at the time, by the way, it was also referred to as baseball. And we say, well, we have this modern game that we drew from versions of town ball. And so it's totally just for us to call it town ball one word, just as baseball is referred to as baseball one word. Both games being modern games, being like the solidified, complete telos version of two different bat and ball games Baseball, two words, and town ball, two words, played in the 19th century. That was a lot of words. Did you catch all that? Yeah, no, that's right. Another reason we did that is because, I mean, the name baseball is already taken, right? So you have to come up with something else that's distinct, but also is retaining some kind of historical precedent, right? That's exactly what we're thinking. That's yeah, right. and town ball just makes the most sense to my in my mind. One thing that might be a lingering question in the back of someone's head you know the you know the armchair historian uh, is why did 
the Massachusetts game not become successful? And I, th- I think the short answer is just that the New York game got better at organizing themselves. They had better marketing. They had better athletes. They codified rules sooner. They kind of, they almost made themselves like a union. Uh, or uh, as as my uh, my my friend Dr. Paul Moreno uh, would call them a kind of a cartel in the beginning, um, and that's why the you know the Major League Baseball has that's why they still have strikes to this day is because it is kind of like a union. So um, that I mean they call themselves the National like Association when the game wasn't even national yet. <laughs> so that was that was how they kind of established themselves as the standard. I guess the Massachusetts folks weren't as forward-thinking in that regard. I would agree with that for sure. And by the way, Dr. Moreno, for those who don't know, he is a baseball historian. He's a historian in general, but specifically loves baseball from the New York area, uh, who teaches at Hillsdale College. Mm-hmm. And so he he definitely has a lot of insights into these things. And uh, you mentioned, you know, what why is it that the New York game won, and all the reasons you mentioned are valid. But there's another reason is that the actual field itself, and this kind of goes back to one of the questions you asked about where the Fibonacci sequence came in, how that was used to kind of complete the game of town ball, or sorry, 21st century town ball, is that the original version of the Massachusetts game had a slightly awkward geometry in that after you hit the ball, you, you ran 90 degrees to your right. How, how do you describe this? 90 degrees? Oh, yeah. You're right. If, if you're in the batter's box, right. yeah. you're facing the pitcher, it's 90 degrees to your right, which if you're yeah. right-handed, it means you're just going to run straight where your body's facing. That's right. Yeah. Right. It's 30 feet. And then to second, you know, 90 degrees to the left from there, um, that would be 60 feet. And then to third, 90 degrees, another 60 feet. And then to fourth, another 60 feet. And the, the question came up to me immediately of, well, why those numbers, right? Because it was a question that I always ask. Baseball makes sense. 90 feet, there's a reason behind it. Uh, it's, it goes with the theme of nines and threes. But why 30, 60, 60? Did it have to be so? And so when we were looking to try to solidify this game, we kept asking, that question was at the very forefront of our mind, like why 30, why 60, why 60? There's got to be some kind of mathematical reason that we can use to justify this. And to the years of thinking about it already that I had done uh, previously, you know, it didn't take long for us when we actually play, because I didn't play it for the first time except in 2012 with my students. That after playing it, it's almost like the Fibonacci sequence suggested itself. Because if you're going to have to come back around, baseball, the diamond looks so mathematically perfect coming back around full circle or full square. Whereas the Massachusetts game, it's like, why is it that you have 30 and then 60? It's like increasing in number. Then I was like, oh, of course, increasing in number, it should be a spiral. The Fibonacci sequence makes perfect sense in that case. So the ratio of like distances between like, you know, starting in the batter's box from there to first, first to second, second to third, the distance between those bases increase and the justification for exactly how much they increase comes from the order of Fibonacci numbers. So, I mean, for someone who is like, I keep hearing this word Fibonacci, what the heck is this? You'll probably get a better understanding if you YouTube it or Google it, but essentially it's this Italian guy from like the 13th century, again, 13 Fibonacci number. He discovered that there's this pattern uh, uh, that you could, it's it's a two-dimensional pattern that you can graph uh, and he find, he found it in many different aspects of nature, flowers. Um, I can't remember other examples, Jones. But anyway, when you graph this out, the the ratio of everything together is 1.618. And all, all the different points relative to each other are that exact uh, proportion. Now, that's how it's represented geometrically. But it can also be represented with arithmetic. And that's just an order of numbers that if you plotted them geometrically give you that shape. So the formula is you start with, you know, your typical zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. What happens is you add this to the sum of the prior answer when you when you add numbers in the sequence. So if it's zero and one, that's one. Zero plus one equals one. Zero plus one one equals one. One plus one equals two. Then one plus two equals three. 
two plus three equals five. That's three right. Three plus five equals eight. Five plus eight equals thirteen, and so on and so forth. So that that that's that's the that's a two minute boil down of how the Fibonacci sequence is represented in arithmetic and in geometry. <laughs> and I'm not the math teacher on this podcast. <laughs> Is, uh, do you think did I do a pretty good job there, Jones? <laughs> you did a very good job. Well, you should be a math teacher. <laughs> no, just, right in, you, you can suffer my classes anytime. I, I just hang out with you too much. <laughs> yeah, I've, maybe, maybe. I've 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 known you for four years, and I've I've been able to get this whole Fibonacci thing down. So what that looks like on a town ball field. So if you if you keep getting that those numbers out, you know, three, five, eight, thirteen, twenty-one, thirty-four, fifty-five. Just uh, take those same numbers and just kind of all multiply them by two. So then instead of 21, 34, 55, you get 42, 68, 110. So the ratio between them is still the same, right? They're just larger numbers. So that's how many feet there are between the bases. From the batter's box to first is 42 feet. Um, you're still going in the same direction, 90 degrees, and then counterclockwise, you you know you round first to the left, 90. Same degrees. direction as the Massachusetts yeah. game. That's right. Second, second from first to second is 68 feet, and second to third is 110 feet. Now we weren't going to go up from there because running longer than 110 feet is just insane. So well, can I, can I jump in right there? That's how did that's that get decided? That's, a, that's exactly what happened. Is that like you said, 42 feet and 68. I don't remember the exact day. It was probably the fifth day of the first month. Um, I remember Brad Vasaki was, we were sitting in my classroom because, you know, Brad mentioned we were having all these different debates, right? So as Brad and Jimmy and Tommy and Mason have mentioned, right? I teach a debate style math class. In their case, it would have been a debate style geometry class. And so we, we took that same debate style, that spirit of debate and took it to this game. And so after school and at lunch, we would go into my classroom and we were all so enthusiastic about it because we, we loved this game. And we were like, with the passion, we had a passion about the game and about the rules and about making this as good as we possibly could. And so that passion came out in our discussions and our debates. We would say, it should be like this. Because we, we talked about maybe having two outs. We talked about maybe not having pegging. We took all the rules in the Massachusetts game and scrutinized every single one. And we said, okay, is this what we want? Is this what we want? We were actually really surprised how many of the rules of the original Massachusetts game that we kept exactly as they are. I, About I think 80% I did, of them, roughly, right? Kind of. I, I, it might be closer to 100%, except that we had to change a cer certain things. Uh, oh, when, right. I, when I say that, it's not like 80% of it was Massachusetts. Uh, it's not that 80% of the Massachusetts game was kept. It's more like our game is fulfilled by 80% Massachusetts game because that's as many rules as there were. We had to add rules to kind of supplement. That's right. Thank you. From Town Ball and from other things. And so we were really surprised and pleasantly surprised that our game now has so much history. It's so much rooted in both the Massachusetts game and in Town Ball and a little bit in, in cricket. We had to borrow from cricket and from stool ball and that kind of thing. But the core of this game really came down to the Massachusetts game. And that's where we. We kept most of the rules that, that were originally there. I distinctly remember Brad was in one of those debates. We were debating with the students, uh, with the players. Uh, Brad was in one of those debates. He was sitting in the back, back of the class. And I was, I was talking, and I drew on the board. I drew 42 feet, because this is the idea I had. 42 feet, 68 feet, 110 feet. I said, you know what? What if we just complete the square? Because with 110 feet, you add another 110 feet to it, and another 110 feet. You now have that perfect square, just like they have in baseball except we have the Fibonacci sequence built in. And so we had both the Fibonacci sequence and the perfect square of baseball. It was at that moment that I think everything kind of just solidified. I turned back and looked at Brad because he was one of the people that was most invested in what we we're doing. He had his hand on his chin and just kind of paused for a minute and he nodded. And as soon as I saw him nod, I said, this is it. And that's, that's in my opinion, the, the moment that town ball, as we know it, was born. And that makes so much sense to me because the field to me is the most original aspect of 21st century town ball. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's the most new addition to it that had no precedent before that. Yes. It's inspired by the Massachusetts base path. Um, but it's, it's more than that. I mean, like where you hit from the batter's box and then where home is, those aren't even in the same spot like they are in baseball. That's right. So there's this like, it's it's like an open loop. It doesn't close where you start and stop, because once you hit fifth base, you're 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 done. 
You you got home. That's one run. And can I say one more thing about that? Yeah. And so for me, once the Fibonacci sequence kind of just came together in Town Ball, at that point, I was like, hmm, we're using this, the Fibonacci sequence for the base paths. I wonder if we can find the Fibonacci sequence in other parts of Town Ball. And I started looking, and I realized that virtually every single part of Town Ball was based on the Fibonacci sequence. Um, so, for example, we already had five stakes once we added that. So that, that was settled. Um, there were we already had three strikes because that's original to the original uh, Massachusetts game. There's already one out, which is the, which is the Fibonacci number. Um, and we're thinking to ourselves, heck, if we use the Fibonacci sequence to inform the base paths, and the base paths are what make the game what it is, why not just use the Fibonacci sequence for everything else? So we thought about, okay, how many players in the team should we have? These, these things rapidly happened after after this point. I mean, that's once we got the field, everything just kind of fell into place within felt like minutes, but it was probably a few days, right? Because we had to debate these, these things out. But we're like, okay, 8 makes sense and 13 makes sense. So we tried both. And once we had 13 players in the field, it just sits so right. So one thing that I don't think you even know, Grant, is that we actually, my son and I recently did a diagram of the field. And we said, where would these, where would these 13 players be positioned on the field if we wanted to have official positions? And it just formed such a balance of, of where all the fielders should be. Just like in baseball, the nine players form a really good balance umbrella. There's a very similar balance that takes place for 21st century tumble with exactly 13 players. Just to give you a heads up, player one is the pitcher, player two is the catcher, player three is the first baseman, player four is the second baseman, five, six, and seven, the rest of the baseman. Then we have seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, seven more. We have the shortstop, the cover, and then we have... The backup, we have center field, we have left field, and, and we have right sorry, field. Sorry, by backup, you mean backup catcher. Backup catcher. And so with those, you know, the audience can't necessarily see this, but it forms like a, a good balance of where the positioning should be. Just like cr for cricket, there's 11 players in the cricket field. Nine for baseball, 11 for cricket, 13 for town ball. It's right in there with the other games. And 13, every time we've played with 13, it's just been a phenomenal game. I think all the captains I've ever played would tell you that 13 is exactly what you want for an official team of town ball. Yeah, and I can count the number of town ball games on one hand where I've I've played where we had that many on one side. <laughs> I my, in my short history with the game, I am way more uh, familiar with like small ball town ball. <laughs> small ball town ball is still fun yeah it's still fun about that too. It, it is. it's still fun it's great it, it th that's another thing about this game is it's actually very scalable that's right because you have to set up the field every time you play and you have to measure everything out with measuring tape if you only have so many players you can if you want to just draw the dimensions out at like half scale or two-thirds scale I've, I've played town ball at two-thirds scale before with a lower number of people and we had a better time than yeah. we probably would have if we were at full scale field. So how does this all, all, all of this is kind of drawing board con conceptual stuff that's talked about in a classroom after hours, probably once this was actually implemented in the game, how did it start to be, feel more real and tangible and justified afterward? That's a great question. We, played a lot of town ball for two years 2012 2013 wherever we could whenever we could because we became so addicted to this game as brad mentioned we played in the front of the school with, with uh, an incredible and probably hit several cars and made people angry uh, we played on the band field we played <laughs> in front of buildings that weren't really fields with trees, kind of like the vintage baseball movement where they just kind of play wherever. It had the same spirit of vintage baseball when we played. But for those two years, it was all pickup town ball, which was a lot of fun. But it finally came time when we had enough players that we already had the structure of cricket in place. We'd already had five solid seasons. Let me back up even further. Okay, so in cricket, what we did is we had three teams. And every single elective season, I would elect three captains. And if a person was a captain, they would stay captain until they graduated. 
And so what that allowed them to do is to kind of develop a team over time. So, for example, Thomas Sanchez, who was interviewed earlier, um, he became captain his sophomore year, but he stayed captain until he was a senior. And um, Mason, I think he was captain maybe only a senior year, and some of the other captains, maybe the junior and the senior year. And so they, they would be captain, they would form their team, and they would, they would pick new teams, but they would generally pick the same players all the way through. And so we already had the structure in place for cricket. So I said, well, let's, let's go ahead and take town ball to the next level. And so I elected three captains, as Brad mentioned. I was a captain myself. Brad was a captain, and John Soudon was a captain. Brad mentioned how he picked teams. Brad picked the New York Mutuals. Um, I gave them a list of 19th century baseball names. So the New York Mutuals was Brad's team. Uh, John Soudon, he went with the Louisville Grays. Um, so that, that, that team has a lot of history. And then I took the Boston Red, Red, Boston Red Caps. That was the original name. And so um, we picked our teams. I said each, each captain could pick up the 13 players. I think each team only had about 11 or 12 that first year. We were like <laughs> trying to recruit anybody we could to play for those, those teams. And I remember telling Shivan Patel, like, because the, the elective started in January. Uh, this was 2014 by this point. And so as the school year was, the semester was ending in December, like right before Christmas break, I said, Shivan, we're about to road test this game. We don't actually know if this is going to work or not. We've been playing this with, as pickup games. It's been a lot of fun. But now it's time to road test the game as like an official league and see what happens. I remember those words very clear to Shivam because we just didn't know what was going to happen. And man, I'll tell you, those two weeks that we played town ball were some of the best experiences of our lives for all of them. You know, I was 30, I don't know how, 35, 36, 37, I think, by this time already had lived a long, long time. And that week was one of the best experiences of my life. And the students will tell you now that looking back in that, that first year of town ball, that elective when we started the seasons with the teams and everything, they'll tell you, yeah, those are some of the best times of my life as well. And so we still talk about it. Brad still has his fond memories about it. Shivam, in case you don't know who Shivam is, he's one of the captains of the cricket teams. He was a, a captain his junior and senior. Uh, he now runs a hotel in Fresno, so we've had meetings at his hotel, etc. And he does a lot of jujitsu, uh, but he played town ball as well. But his big thing was cricket. I hope we can interview also on this podcast at some point. But he was he played for the Louisville Grace, played for John Southern's team, and we got a chance to road test this game. And as soon as we did that season, everyone's like, "Dude, I cannot wait for next season." And that's when town ball became, like you said, really official, and we knew that this game was going to last forever. Wow. Yeah, that's great. The uh, that's that's a similar account I got from people like Tommy and Jimmy and Brad. Another moment that they highlighted as something that made them feel, wait a minute, this is like a legitimate sport that we are playing with other people now is when you all went out to Golden Gate Park and played against one of the Bay Area vintage baseball teams. I want to say 2017. Yeah. How is that? And how did you get involved with them? Yeah, it was either 2016, 2017. I don't remember which year it was. I, so I was living in Squaw Valley at the time, and it might have been Christmas break. And this idea just kind of hit me. I was like, what if we did this? What if we reached out to the Bay Area Vintage Baseball League and asked them if they want to try town ball? And it seemed at the time such a far-fetched idea to me because, like Brad said, it, Town Ball really still had that feel of it's just us. It's just University High School. This isn't real, even though it was real to us because of that season. Nobody knows about us. <laughs> it just it still had that sense of it being a fad. And so the just the concept of like an actual league playing with us just seemed like no that's not going to happen but i told my mother-in-law about it and she said yeah do it it sounds like a great idea i was like it just didn't seem like it was possible but i made the phone call he said yeah that sounds great let's do something like that i got the school to sponsor our field trip it became a field trip like on a saturday or something like that we took the entire team brad was already graduated by this time so he and some other alumni came back to play in that game and oh my goodness that game Seriously, like I, people like Royce Villamea, I think that's his last name. Royce, he's probably hearing this podcast. He knows. I talked to him and said, Royce, did you have as much fun as I did? He said, yeah. 
the only thing way I can ex describe it, Mr. Jones, is that was pure freedom. I said, that's exactly how I describe it, too. It was just like something about that day we played. We played town ball. Everyone was ha laughing, having a good time. And it was just heavenly, that kind of experience. I know it doesn't really say anything about town ball, but it was just such a great experience that we had. Playing against the Bay Area Avengers Baseball League, 13 on 13, full on town ball with adults. And our my students were just like, wow, this is amazing. We're actually playing town ball with people outside the school. So like Brad said, that was a defining moment or maybe jimmy that was a defining moment for us in really believing that this game could be what we wanted it to be a national a national game that was kind of what we were talking about at the time we want this to be a national game we don't know how we hadn't met you yet right <laughs> we hadn't met grant we hadn't met anybody that had the skill to even help us get to that point but uh, i mean meeting you was a really important part of that of kind of making this a national game because your skill and able to network and get this this game out there and so, like Jimmy said, this thing has exploded, and a lot of that is in part to you and the things you've done. I kind of had the idea, but I don't really have the same gifting or skills that you have <laughs> to really push this game to the next level. And I think before we had you, this game just didn't feel like it was anything besides just what we had experienced ourselves. And so that was definitely a, a defining moment for us. We actually okay. believed, believed in the game to another level after playing against the Bay Area Vintage Baseball League. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I I always appreciate those comments. I can't imagine myself doing anything else with the game. I I echo that feeling. It is pure freedom when you when you step out there, and the the rules are in such a way that they just give you so much choice as as a player. I mean, I mentioned this on my episode with Brad, but when he filled out that survey a while back, he said. In his own words, he feels like town ball is the epitome of strategy and choice because of all the things you can do in the game. And yeah, I mean, so so now looking back, how has your perspective of those years, 2012 to 2018, when you moved to Oregon, how has your view of those years changed over time when it comes to town ball? Those years are very, very, very fun memories for me. Um, so I was going through some personal issues that were causing depression at the time. Um, this was in 2011, 2012. And so for me, just beyond town ball itself, I really needed town ball. I remember telling my wife several times, town ball is what gets me out of bed in the mornings. And, you know, high schoolers at that time, that at that age, they really need something like that, some kind of an outlet um, by which they can, something they can really believe in that's bigger than themselves. Brad really alluded to this. And there are other people that have said the same thing. So that's, that's, that's the thing is we're interviewing these people, but this, these interviewees represent a lot of people because a lot of people have had, had the same experience with town ball. And we talk about it. We talked about when, when we were back in university high school. And one of the things that we mentioned, like one day we were just talking in my room, like Shivam likes to refer to it as talking about nothing. We're just sitting here talking about nothing. <laughs> but we're talking about town ball. And we just kind of marveled. We've none of us have ever played a sport before that generated this much discussion about the game itself. We're constantly talking about what happened because the the number, like like Brad said, the epitome of choice and what choice and what do you say? Strategy. Strategy. There's so many different things that can happen and that do happen in town ball because the number of choices is so unpredictable and yet so organized loosely. It's like. I think someone mentioned it. It's like organized chaos, and it really is. Because yeah, Tommy said really, that. There's these really hard, fast rules that never change, right? But besides that, you can do whatever you want. Brad talked about that. You can do whatever you want, but these hard, these hard. So because of that, there's so many options, and so there's so many conversations that center around town ball, and so we have just these fond, fond memories of playing town ball, of talking about town ball. We kind of eat, lived, and breathed town ball during those those few years. Um, before I left university high school, and it was just a phenomenal experience. And I, I think personally, I was a little bit afraid that that would disappear because I got to Veritas and we we played town ball and it was fun, but it was nothing like at university high school because the school is just so small. We just had a few people, you know, we included seventh graders, which was good, but it just wasn't didn't have the same like magnetic and magnificent feel that town ball had at the time. And so I kind of, you know, lamented a little bit. Um, to my former students, yeah, I wish we could go back and do this again. 
So we talked about, you know, I'll, I'll come back every Christmas or every summer, or, you know, every once in a while to Fresno because my parents still live there. So we play pickup games in the summer, but it wasn't quite the same because we didn't have that like epic tournament that we had every year, even though it was still a lot of fun. And so I, I, I talked to Tommy about this and said, hey, I wish we could just like still do this. I mean, we're still here. We're still people. We're not in the same environment, but can we do this again? And that's where the West Coast Town Ball League was born. We said, you know what, let's just make this a league and just do it. And so I kind of was afraid that it wouldn't be the same, but it was. When we went back last year to Fresno, I took an entire team of, I think, 11 players, and you were on that team. So the 11 of us you know, traveled from Newburgh to California. I kind of conceptualized this league. It was a huge risk for me because I was taking minors with me. You know, kids that were 16, 17, 18 years old, their parents <laughs> trusted me with their kids. We went to Fresno, a place they had never been before. We rented an Airbnb for like over a week. We had to cook ourselves. We had to do all this stuff that some of these kids had never done before, all hoping that the other captains who I put together, we need to talk about how that happened too, but all the, the captains I put together, and there were six teams all together, I had to hope that they actually followed through and made these teams because otherwise we go all the way there rent this airbnb and do nothing and it all worked out really well we had six teams we played each team once one of the teams we played twice we actually stopped in turlock as you know and played a pickup game there we played at the golden gate park in san francisco and it was maybe not quite the same as what we did at university high school because at university high school everybody was required to be there because of school and so you know it was very compact as far as time and such. And everybody was just so emotionally invested at the time. But I will say that the level of play and the games that were played last summer were far superior to what we did in high school. Especially, you know, if people have a chance to watch, if we ever get it published, the game between the Coyotes, that's Raul Diaz's team, the Madeira Coyotes, and the Newburgh Quakers, as you know, we played that game last summer, and that was just... That under was the a lights. nail biter of a game. Un under the lights, because it started during the day, but went so long, we ended up continuing to play, and the lights turned on. We played under the lights. Came down to a final walk-off hit. And here is the exact sound clip from that walk-off hit. It was just like, yeah, oh. some good talent. The other team had the Coyotes really, gave us a run for our money. They had some big name players like Shark Bait, Alonzo, and other players. I mean, Raul just put together a phenomenal team. His team is just going to be hard to beat this year because he, I know he's going to come back even stronger this year. But the level of play was better. Town Ball is going to live on. And my perspective was kind of waning a bit. But after meeting you and what you've done in the eastern part of the U.S., and after experiencing what we did last summer, like Jimmy said, this game is going to live on and it's going to come back even stronger. That's just the thing. It just kind of grows in these waves. It's exponential growth, very slow, slow curve, exponential growth. But as you know, exponential growth down the road, it's going to be big. So would you say your vision for the game today was the same as it was five, six, seven, eight years ago? Or has it changed as you've seen more of what's possible with it. It's exactly the same. My vision hasn't changed at all. This is exactly what I was hoping would happen. I just had no idea how to get there. So it went from dream to reality over time, little by little. Again, you were a big part of that because you and I talked. Uh, we started a small business where we can sell the equipment, sell the balls, sell the jerseys, that kind of thing. And those little things like that, playing in Michigan with you, uh, was a couple summers ago when I went to Michigan. That was a phenomenal game. And I was like, wow, this, 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 this is working no matter where I go. I go to Oregon, it works. You go to Fresno, it works. You go to Michigan, it still works. So it's just like the game is so well-structured, as many people have, have commented before, that the game just works. You just have to get enough guys together to play, and the game works. It looks exactly the same no matter where you go. And once, once, like, you, like you know, once people play the game, they become addicted immediately because like this game has so much freedom. Why isn't this a national game? Thank you. That's what we think too. We're going to make it a national <laughs> game. Great. In fact, I was talking just yesterday to Angie Burke, who is helping me start the junior league town ball here at Newburgh with 
we actually have a league now with fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, that age rate, age, fourth, five, six, seven, eight. And they're playing town ball on the playground of all places because we don't have a lot of field space anymore. Because I, I said, yeah, I kind of hinted at the fact that I invented town ball. She's like, oh, really? Well, this person over here says they play town ball. I said, well, who is it? Said, well, they play town ball at George Fox. I said, well, hello. What do you think we started town ball? She's like, oh, <laughs> she had no idea it was the same group. So I don't remember what my point was about, about that, but it's just like town ball seems to just keep growing. And everywhere you turn, people hear about town ball and they don't realize that they're actually the same group that's, that's playing town ball. The freedom inherent in the game obviously has to do a lot with the rules, but I mean, something we've heard on previous episodes is that the way in which the game developed and the rule set developed was also a very free, open dialogue debate type of process, which, as our previous guests have asserted, was very similar to the style of your math class. How much intentionality was there on your part for town balls evolution to mirror whatever you were doing in the classroom or was that just an accident it's not an accident so my mom as i mentioned is from zimbroda minnesota for people who know zimbroda minnesota the culture is super laid back super friendly super norwegian and people there are just super good listeners and I kind of inherited that from my mom. I'm a good listener, even though I'm talking a lot today. And I bring that into my classroom, right? So I, I'm really like attracted to the idea of listening to what my students have to say. That's kind of where the debate style comes from, really. It's just I'm just listening to my students to see what they have to say about these things. What do you think about this question? Huh, never thought about that. What do you think? And just keep asking, what do you think, and listening. Debate style and town ball, what they have in common is that you have to listen to people. And so with Town Ball, what we did is I said, okay, well, let's try this rule. What do you guys think? And I just listened to what my students had to say. I had the opportunity to be a teacher, so I got the, the chance to be the final say. But it wasn't like I said, this is what I think. This is what we're going to do. And you're all going to listen to me because I'm the authority. I took the opposite approach. I said, well, here's an idea. What do you think? I'll have the final say, but I really want to know what you guys say and see if everybody agrees that this is the best way possible. So debate style and town ball really come from the spirit of Zimbroda, Minnesota. The spirit of listening to other people and see what they have to say. And so what they have in common is that aspect of small town feel. It's not like I said, hey, let's apply debate style to town ball. It's more like, let's just keep listening to what people have to say about these things and see what comes of it. So I, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I think that the common thread is really about the small town getting together a community and listening to what people have to say over lunch um, and just kind of see what ideas people have. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, it's very much like the antithesis of bureaucracy to, 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 to carry on with this theme of this, this analog of, you know, a small group of people thinking about something together, right? It's organized, but it's not, there's no, there's no red tape. It's not draconian. It's not any of those things. And that's what allows it to get to the place that it got. So is that, is that, is, I think that's what you're, you're, you're trying to say when you compare it to the, the culture aspect of Minnesota, which is funny because there's an entire Amazon Prime documentary about amateur baseball in Minnesota that's called Town Ball, but it has absolutely nothing to do with us. But that is, that is the thing. That's right. Two words sound. That's interesting because we haven't even talked to those people yet, but I'd be curious to see how my original hometown folks take the town ball. That's for sure. Yeah. We'll have to talk to them someday for, Absolutely. for like trademark reasons and other things. It's like, Hey, it's okay. It's we're one word. Don't worry. You guys are doing your thing. It's great. Keep going. I, I remember when you came to my house last uh, two summers ago, we watched one of the episodes of that and they've really got a nice thing going on there. I, I mean, amateur community baseball, apparently is such a big deal in, in Minnesota. And I mean, that's the type of spirit that I think a lot of baseball fans hope to preserve about baseball. And one of the reasons why that's something we are heavily emphasizing with town ball is because unfortunately we're starting to see that go away, not just from major league baseball, but from mainstream sports in general, I would say, right? Because it's become more about the numbers, more 
hyper-athletic, right? The idea of the amateur is kind of taken away from it. And yes, you're going to have to deal with that at some level when something becomes professionalized. But, you know, there's there's limits to, the, to that that ought, ought to be acknowledged. But when when I talked with Jimmy about the future of town ball, what, what were your thoughts on, on that discussion? Yeah, I remember you guys having a slight disagreement. Uh, Jimmy was kind of excited about it becoming a professional sport, and I can definitely identify with what he's saying. He and I are both baseball fans. We've been, you know, played baseball growing up and that kind of thing. <laughs> like Jimmy, I would love to turn on the TV and watch a town ball game. I mean, the game is just so much more exciting than baseball, in our opinion, of course. There's just so much more going on. I think from that standpoint, both he and I would just love to see it get to that level. Um, I, I would like to see what Tumble looks like played at that level, at the professional level. But then you have a really good point, too, is that we don't want to spoil the spirit of the game through over-commercialization and that kind of thing. So Jimmy's counter was, okay, well, you know, you can't really control that. And he's actually technically right about that. So I think my take is not to worry about it too much. Let's just enjoy the ride for as long as we possibly can. Because if we have a, if we really establish this in the right spirit of the game for as long as possible, that will always be something that people want to come back to. And that will live on, even if not at the professional level, at the amateur level, like baseball does in Minnesota. So I think it's not like we necessarily need to or can control the outcome of what happens with town ball. But we can definitely enjoy it in the present. Speaking about the town ball spirit of the present, right? We can definitely enjoy town ball now for what it is for as long as we can. I think Jimmy really does have a vision for where town ball is going to go. I think Brad really did explain very well the origin of town ball. But I think at the end of the day, we really want to enjoy this game now. I like to say it's not about playing baseball back when it was just a game. People always say baseball when it was just a game. What the heck? Why not just play baseball when it is just a game? So I like to say let's play town ball now while it is still just a game because it is just we're just having a lot of fun. Like we're surfing a wave. Let's enjoy the wave before the wave ends. Take it as or, long as we can. Or before the wave turns into just something else. Um, Another wave. <laughs> yeah, a different kind of wave. What other things do you think it's good to, to kind of end on here for someone who's been listening up to this far with the UHS era before we can before we continue on to the next chapter, which includes the Oregon and the Veritas era? Sure. So one thing that Brad mentioned is that those first years of town ball, we kept stats and everything. And we did. For five years, we took detailed stats on every single player. We published that on, on, on our website. And we really wanted to document what we had done. We were, we're kind of hoping that first experience with town ball becomes iconic of what town ball can become someday. Because people look back to the 19th century. Vincent's baseball enthusiasts love to research old newspaper clippings, old batting averages, and that kind of thing. Who were the heroes at the time? And we're hoping that what we're doing right now is something that people can look in the future to the past and say, hey, what were town ball's origins? And so we, we realized that if this game really does become as big as we think it will, <laughs> because it th th doesn't seem to be anything stopping it from becoming really big, especially because of how the game is so much fun. We're hoping that the things that we do now can be remembered and we can document them really well. So that's why we're, we're keeping stats and that kind of thing. And we also, also another thing that we should, we should talk about sometime is what the statistics look like in town ball, because my son Joshua is really into that. Um, he's developed what he refers to as like a slugging percentage in town ball, except it's different than in baseball. In baseball, it's like if you have an average of a double per at-bat, you have a slugging percentage of two. If you average a single per at-bat, it's a batting average of one, right? Um, it's, it's basically calculating the bases divided by the number of outs. And so what Chuck has done is not number of bases by the, but divided by the number and of Chuck outs. Chuck is Joshua's nickname. It's, this Chuck is not is two separate my, people. My son Joshua, Chuck Jones. He says, he, he basically has this, a stat where it's, it's based on the number of 110 feet divided by the number of outs. So a double in town ball is, is, is one 110 feet. A triple is two 110 feet. And that makes so much sense. My, my point is that there are different stats you can do in town ball that make the game even more interesting and intriguing. Uh, because in baseball, a good, a good batting average is 333, right? And if you're in college level, maybe 400, maybe 500. In town ball, a good batting average is 800, 700, 800, 900. And a bad batting average is 200, 300. The spread is just so much different. And that's another thing we haven't talked about is the fact that in town ball, you don't have to be very good to play town ball. But if you are very good, there's so much room to shine. 
So it's really a game for everyone. And I think the way that the game design allows that, and I think the stats really show that really well. Looking at the number of home runs, look, looking at the number of RBIs, all those things. We're trying to document. Time is short. We're trying so hard to keep up with all the different games that we've played. But the statistical aspect of things, maybe you can interview Chuck at some point. I'll talk about those things. But there's a lot to say about that and how that reflects the game um, on paper through mathematics as well. Yeah, well, I, I think a phrase we've used before is that town ball allows for a low floor and a high ceiling of talent spread, of skill spread, because you don't have to hit the ball to get on base. If you're not a great runner, you can hit up to three times before you get on base and buy yourself and your other base runners tons of time. It's amazing. Well, I'll, I definitely plan on interviewing Chuck later on to talk about how we do stats a little differently for for those who would really get super nerdy into that but don't worry there are other episodes coming up that may not be as heavy on stats if if, if you don't care as much about that but it's going to be more stories from some of my own personal friends from college who i got to introduce to town ball while i was in newburgh oregon and they're coming at it from a completely different angle after the game has been an established thing and their experience of it. So uh, Brent uh, Brent Townley um, and someone uh, Tristan Rickert will be up soon because of your time with him at Veritas. He's kind of like a he's got one foot in both camps. He's 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 been into Fresno a few times, but he's also been in, around for the Newburg events these last few years. But Jones, my friend, my my business partner in crime, thank you so much for everything you do for Town Ball um, and. I can't wait to talk to you again later in this season. My pleasure, Grant. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the 21st Century Town Ball Podcast. If you want to learn more about the sport, you can visit our website at 21ctownball.com or look at our content on Instagram under the page at 21ctownball. If you're interested in playing the game or creating your own Townball team, you can DM us on social media or email us directly at 21ctownball at gmail.com and we would be happy to start a conversation with you. I'm your host, Grant Moore, and this is the 21st Century Townball Podcast. Is there a ball in your town?